Welcome to Sandra Ray's Fiercely Spiritual Podcast. You're listening to episode 31. Hello and welcome to the Fiercely Spiritual Podcast. I am so delighted to have with me today Alison Canavan as our special guest. And Alison is a UCLA trained mindfulness facilitator from the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behaviour and a master NLP practitioner. She runs a successful private practice as a health and wellness coach and delivers motivational talks on health and well-being all over the world, specializing in mental health and addiction. Alison was a successful international model for nearly two decades and in recent years has devoted her time to her greatest passion, the achievement of true health and well-being for herself and others. I'm so delighted to have you here, Alison, and I can't wait to get talking about the work that you do. So you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sandra. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, and I wanted to mention about how I first heard about you. I don't think you know this, but I remember years ago I was working at a Woman's Way event, and at the time you were one of the guest speakers. And I was in the hotel and I remember seeing this beautiful person floating past me and the poise and the power and the just presence of this person I just looked I was like who is that person and I found out it was you and you were speaking at the event and ever since then I've been a big fan and I just love your work and I'd love to talk about how you went from being an international model and I know you still do some of that work to studying and training in mindfulness and getting into the wellness side of things. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. That's really lovely to hear. Um, yeah, gosh, what a journey. I started modeling at 15, Sandra. So it was, it was one of those, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And my mom and her friend put me in for a competition. And when I was doing my leaving, I was like, I still don't really know what I'm going to do. And I was doing what everyone else does. What you put down? You put down the arts on your CAO form, you know? And... I just decided to continue traveling. I was in Paris and London and everything. And I decided, you know what? This opportunity is right in front of me. I might as well take it. And it was a phenomenal opportunity to travel the world. I mean, I traveled the entire world, went to every country in the world and, you know, modeled and met wonderful people and had an amazing time. Uh, I've always been a spiritual soul seeker. So I suppose that's always been there since I've been very, very, very young. I've always been very intuitive. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I was never surrounded by anybody who spoke about that or understood that. And if you see my house here, you'll see like 50 pairs, 50 packs of angel cards and all different things. And this is the part of myself that I used to hide for many, many years. Do you know what I mean? Afraid of people to see it. Because like, what's that weird stuff that you're into? Um, and this is the part of me now that can just truly be who I am. So I first was introduced to meditation in London through yoga. I remember in Muswell Hill after a yoga class and I absolutely loved it. I loved the sense of peace that it gave me. And I thought, oh, and I used to go off to like Buddhist centers in London and never tell anybody. Like my boyfriend at the time would never have known. I remember saying I was doing an acting for the camera course. And then when I went to New York, I really um, dived in to Kadampa Buddhism. And I had the most incredible teacher there called Kadamortam. And he was 
the most serene, grounded, beautiful presence I have ever been in. But also he had this extraordinary way of speaking to New Yorkers and really relating the Buddhist teachings to life in New York. And that's what really kind of set me on the path of, of doing this work. Um, unfortunately, I was in the fashion industry. There was also another life going on parallel where I was partying an awful lot um, and quite lonely, actually, you know, very, very lonely. And, you know, it's great to be traveling the world and it's great to be doing all these things. But most of the time in my industry, you were on your own. And I don't know if anybody has seen it or if you have seen A Star is Born, the recent movie that has just come out. I haven't it, seen it yet. So I'm it is, it's extraordinary in so many ways. But for me, it really depicted the, the descent into addiction really well in that industry. You know, the fact that he had just come off stage and he was in the car and he just wanted another drink. Because like he'd just come off stage playing to tens of thousands of people and then he was on his own. You know, it's like, where are all those people now? Like, you know, where is my connection to people? So when I had my son um, and I came home from the States, I had bad postnatal depression. And again, I was given the um, option of medication. I, was, I say option. It was the only option. <laughs> there, were, there were no other options. Um, so there were no other choices. And this is the choice that I'd been given all the way through my entire life with any doctor I presented with. It was always... Um, Let's change your medication. Let's put you on medication. You're suffering from anxiety. But before you get that flight, let's put you on and um, take a half a Xanax or, you know, we'll give you sleeping tablets to help you sleep or you're just not adjusting to time zones. And it's really incredible to look back on my time. And yes, I was in this. It, it's interesting that I never mentioned my mental health problems to any of my friends in the Buddhist community. I obviously had you know, fear around it, fear of being judged. What would people think, you know, um, what would people think of me? And I went through this journey for so long, kind of feeling very isolated. So I did, I took the medication and I remember a couple of months into the medication, I didn't feel great on the medication. And I never really did, you know, <laughs> this time I had a little bit more clarity, you know, I wasn't drinking, I was a new mom, I was breastfeeding, all of that type of stuff. And I knew that the medication was making me very cloudy. And I just kind of thought to myself, there has to be another way. There has to be. Like, this, this can't be it, you know. This can't be the answer. And I started to really explore food, um, well-being, you know. It took me a long time to recover from postnatal depression. But the very simple things of being kinder to myself. I started to keep a gratitude diary. I really upped my practice with meditation and um, and I started to really do the work in a very authentic and real way consistently. And the consistently is really the key part of this because I was going to Cadham's talks on Tuesday and Thursday in New York. So that was two hours every night. But outside of that, I wasn't maintaining my practice. And outside of that, I wasn't doing the work. And I was even going on retreats and coming back after the weekend, feeling amazing, you know. And then four days later going, oh, I've just gone back to my old ways. And there was a, a disconnect with, you know, retreats are not going to fix you. The teacher is not going to fix you. You're the only person that can fix you. So the penny started to drop from that perspective. And personally, Sandra, I think I was just waking up. You know, I was really waking up. Like through the years, I remember my teacher saying to me, you have all the answers contained within. And there was just a part of that that my consciousness wasn't able to grasp at that time. And the cleaner I got and a cleaner living, I mean, because like I was so intoxicated from medications to alcohol to anything else that was around. 
and crap food. And when we reduce our vibration and our frequency like that, it is very, very difficult for us to wake up. So I started to eat really well. I started to cut out sugar and I started to do all that stuff. And I started to very slowly awaken. And on this path to awakening, I realized, hold on a second, I have quite a lot of power here in how I feel and how I live my life. And it just set me off on a journey of deep passion of really understanding our potential as human beings. And like everything was kind of taken away from me from the material world, like from the outside world. So I was living with my mom. I had no home. I had no car. All of these things. I was on lone parents. I mean, I had been living on Central Park West, but what it did for me was give me the great perspective that you're you're not rich anyway if you're poor inside. And I was poor inside and I was lonely and there was a void I was trying to fill all the time. And there was no amount of money that, that could do that. I have a very different view of the world now. Um, I think you can be the richest person in the world and have very little, in fact. Um, and you can be the poorest person in the world and have an awful lot. So it's all really to do with how we live our life, how we show up, how we treat others, how we treat ourselves and the choices we make, you know, we recently just had an election in Ireland where 44% of people came out to vote. Whereas the rest of the country, you know, you don't really have a right to, to moan about things if, if you're not going to kind of stand up and be counted. And I think what we're learning and what I'm learning on this journey, certainly recently, is that hate and fear are mobilized en masse around the world. And love is not. And there's a lot of people living really beautiful lives who have really amazing hearts, but that you're not going to do anything sitting on the couch at home hmm. saying, yes, but I'm not part of that because I'm an amazing person. So I really started to just have a deep passion for working with people and helping people and understanding that nobody heals anybody else. The person themselves heals, you know, we're conduit. We, we, I suppose we inspire people to want to be better and do better. Like lots and lots of people inspire me on a daily basis to want to be better and do better. So yeah, the journey has taken me through nutrition school and NLP and a raw foods master and then UCLA to study uh, mindfulness and how to write curriculum. So it's been amazing. It's been a wonderful journey. <laughs> I love everything that you're talking about. And I want to go a little bit deeper into this because you touched on the medication. And that's something, I won't say a pet peeve because I think it has a place, mm. but I do think it's certainly overprescribed and it's used um, just to get rid of problems rather than solving problems. And I kind of think of it, it's like, you know, if you have a cut and mm. you put a plaster on it and you say, okay, that's done now. The plaster covers it so you can't see it. But underneath, the cut is still there and it needs to be aired. The wound needs mm. the air to heal. And I think it's the same with our emotional pain. It needs that air and it needs to come to the surface. And if we're just medicating, then we're pushing it down and we're never really dealing with the root of the problem. And I think that when we turn to medication as a uh, fix for it mm. it's like that plaster it's like it keeps going on and I know clients come to me who have been on medication for 15 20 years and they their doctors haven't reviewed their cases yep. they haven't you know it just keeps going on and on so certainly there is a place for it but I do think that it is over prescribed and that definitely mindfulness and meditation has a huge part to play mm when it comes to 
dealing with depression or dealing with emotions and pain. But I know that you were talking about the consistency of the practice. And it was exactly with me when I started out. I read all the books, I attended all the courses, but then I'd go out at the weekend and I'd get drunk. And, you know, I it took a while before I started doing living the life where I, you know, gradually just, I didn't want to drink. And as you say, I didn't want to eat sugar or foods that would pollute my body. And I'm, I'm not perfect by any means, but I do think you have to live it. You have to be a pure channel for the energy and for yourself as well. And I know that that's been your experience. Well, it's, it's, it's beautiful to hear you say that because actually I'm feeling very inspired. I'm just like, yes, and I'm going to not do this today. And, and that's, that's what happens. What you've just done for me there even is we inspire each other. Um, and we need more people shining their light, living this way and showing people that there is another way. And unfortunately, I hate to use the term brainwashed, but we're all brainwashed, you know, to a point. I know I was certainly. I, I always have a rule for myself within my teaching and Marianne Williamson, who's one of my favorite teachers, and I've seen her quite a lot recently, always says, never teach from what you don't know or haven't experienced. And that is one of my golden rules. Like I would never talk about addiction if I hadn't been through it. I would never talk about mental health. And when I talk about medication, I also talk about my own personal experience. I should never have been medicated. Never. And that's a fact. And, you know, my friends who are the best functional medicine doctors in the world, who I work with now in America, will concur with that. I didn't need to be medicated. I needed connection. I needed community. I needed someone to hear me. I needed someone to see me. And I also needed to see, hear, and feel myself. So all the medication was doing was bringing me further and further and further away. And even after I had my baby, you know, did the medication take, get me the step after? I mean, I was in a very bad way after I had my baby. It might have numbed me for a few weeks. Um, do I feel I was any safer? Possibly not, you know, and every situation is different. And this is why we can't, we can never generalize these type of topics. Like we can never say everybody should do this or everybody should do that. But the one thing I know for sure is that if you're not showing up for yourself and you're not willing to do the work, there is no amount of medication that is going to make you better because all medication does is suppress, suppress, suppress. Everything that you suppress is going to have to come up to the surface at some stage, whether you bring it up yourself willingly to heal it and you're willing to navigate those paths and go through that pain, that's one way, or else it's going to come up itself and it's going to present as disease. Disease in many forms, cancers, mental health problems, autoimmune conditions, skin conditions, it is going to come up. It's not going to stay in there. And years ago when I started this work, I used to be very careful and very PC about what I said because I would get attacked. Every time I opened my mouth, I would get attacked. I would get attacked for talking about mental health. Um, you know, we're still deeply, deeply uncomfortable in Ireland talking about addictions. And yet we've had another mental health week go by where we all talk about mental health, but we don't talk about the biggest problem that's causing mental health in Ireland, which is alcohol. Like it is, it is, it is just this elephant in the room that nobody wants to address because Everybody wants to go to the pub and get wasted at the weekend. And then from Monday to Friday, they're trying to be good and trying to eat well. And listen, this is not me 
trying to tear people apart or take them down. I lived like this. I lived like this up until, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago. This is exactly how I lived. And the pain of waking up is the unlearning of the brainwashing that we've had. I remember reading um, Jason Vale's book, The Juice Master. Somebody said to me, oh, Jason Vale wrote a book on addiction. And I was like, Jason Vale, the guy who does the juices? And they were like, actually, it was his books well before he got into juicing. He, he worked for um, the Stop Smoking guy. What was his name? I can't remember now. Um, and he wrote a book called um, How to Stop Drinking. And I read that book and it was mind-blowing. Basically, the book was just about all the lies we've been told about alcohol and the lies we tell ourselves. And to be perfectly honest with you, I would have justified anything to anybody. And I could have, like told you that black was white and made you believe me during my times when I was addicted to alcohol because I wanted to drink and I would have made you believe that my behavior was okay a because everyone else was doing it b because I wasn't causing anybody any harm or so I thought you know c that I was still functioning and still had a very successful career and all of these things all this bullshit and nonsense that we tell ourselves to stay in the cycle of whatever we're doing for now and to step outside the norm is a very tough thing to do. It's a very, very tough road to take. And that's the thing. We don't tell people, like we have loads of yoga classes and loads of meditation now and all this fluffy stuff that's great and people go and they feel better about themselves and look, it's a stepping stone and it's fantastic. But what we don't tell people is how difficult the spiritual road is, how difficult waking up is. Because now you're in a situation where no matter what happens to you, you have to actually feel it. And I've been really sick for the last few months. I'm thankfully much better now, pretty much nearly, I'd say 100% again. But I was so low and I was so ill. And I was thinking, gosh, if this was eight, nine years ago or less, how would I have coped with this? I would have had wine in the evening. I would have done a million other things, but actually look at what was going on. And that's the thing. And people always come to me and, you know, I'll coach them and I'll work with them. And it's when you leave my consultancy room and you go home, that's where the real work begins. The real work begins every day at home with you. So it's really, really important that, that people remember that. Yeah. And it's one thing that I found as well. When clients would come to me for a healing session and they'd spend an hour with me and they'd leave feeling great. And I'd be getting, you know, emails from them saying, oh my goodness, I'm feeling so amazing. But then the next month they'd come back and they'd be at square one again. Yeah. And it's like, I realized, okay, I can do the work for them. But I'm not doing them justice if I'm saying, well, I'll heal you. And of course, I'm not doing any healing. I'm just holding space. But I realized, okay, I have to share the tools and the knowledge and the processes that I've learned so that these people can go home and do these things themselves. And that's why I set up my members group, where we have like a supportive community. And you were talking about that, that lack mm. of support, you know, the loneliness and just like turning to drink because you kind of don't know what else to turn to. And um, it's not even drink, Sandra. It's like, you know, it, like the big ones, the drink, the gambling, um, you know, the drugs, the prescription meds, which are huge now. So many people are addicted to them. But it's the little everyday things. It's codependency with the wrong people. It's sugar in the evening. It's coffee. It's like, so our, our addictions show up in many, many different forms, addicted to negative thinking. 
addicted to being really hard on yourself, addicted to judging people, addicted to consistently. I don't know if you've ever been around people who consistently and constantly put other people down. That's an addiction. It's an addiction to, to that negative frequency that to they're the in. Drama. To the drama, to all of that. So, but what I always say to people is, I fully believe that every single human being can pull themselves out of this. I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't. Like everybody, you know, I have so many people going, oh, well, it's well for you. I had someone on the phone to me yesterday who I was coaching in addiction. And um, they said to me, you know, oh, well, isn't it well for you? You don't have A, B, and C. And I just thought to myself, that's exactly the kind of stuff I used to do. It's exactly the kind of stuff I used to say. And that's why I'm always saying it's important for people to have been there, to, to work in this space, because you're like, I get where you're at. I was there myself. I know what you're talking about. But I do believe that we need to start small and we need to build incrementally because the whole instant gratification world is not doing us any favors at all. You know, we all believe that that's, that's where the medication comes in, the quick hit, the quick fix, the drugs, the drink. You know, I'll give myself temporary reprieve, but I mean, you get temporary relief and then it goes vump right down again. Just look, I mean, I'm trying to come off coffee at the moment, for example, and I love my coffee, but I know that coffee brings me up here and then brings me right down here, leading me to sugar cravings. I know this in my rational mind, but I behave differently. So, you know, we're, when we start to understand ourselves as human beings, we can start to make better choices. Like I've spent the last few years studying the brain and one of the best guys, I'm actually just writing a, a paper on this guy today, Dr. Daniel Siegel, who's one of my teachers, and he's written a book called Mindsight. And the stories are phenomenal in that book, phenomenal about the potential of how we to change our brain. There's people in that book who were told after an accident that they would never recover more than 30% of the use of their brain. And they recovered nearly 100% by doing things like mindfulness, understanding that we can change how our neurons speak to each other, but it's going to take work. You know, you have to do the work. You have to show up. You have to give yourself the time to sit in mindfulness. I mean, what is mindfulness? Everybody's going, oh, mindfulness, it's just, you know, a word being thrown around. Mindfulness is being present and aware in this moment and observing yourself from a place of non-judgment. That's, that's all it is. It's just simply about stepping back and taking a pause and saying, what is going on right now? What is going on in me? What is going on around me? And that's it. That's mindfulness. And one other thing that you touched on, because you were talking about brainwashing, and it's something that I'm so passionate about. And it's the power of the subconscious mind, because we don't realize how much of our lives are subconscious. And you talk about, you know, your coffee and probably it's a habit that you do on a daily basis. You go, you make your coffee, you have like, you know, whatever, a biscuit or something with it. But it's like all of these have like 90% of our lives are our subconscious programming just playing out over and over. So then when we try to change things, when we try to change habits, we wonder why they're not changing because we haven't changed at a subconscious level. Yes, we have the conscious will to change, but we have to change the subconscious programming in order then to make a change. And I think that's the only way to truly do that is to connect with your true self and to understand that we are all consciousness. That's what we are. This body is a vehicle. It's kind of, it's just here to transport us through this realm. Um, And it's simply a vehicle. So what's in that vehicle? And I always say, I remember when my dad passed away and going in to see him laid out, I saw this lifeless body. 
you know, it was just this body and there was absolutely no life in it. And then, you know, I saw his picture on the wall, which I still have here, one of my favorite pictures, and he is full of life. So his essence, his true self left his body. So we are not our bodies, you know? So the only way to connect with who we truly are is to sit with ourselves. Most people from birth to death never do that in the Western world because we're not programmed that way. And when I talk about programming, I'm quite serious that we're programmed. Like we're programmed by our parents, we're programmed by society, we're programmed by school, we're programmed by the media, we're programmed by TV, we're programmed by what we read. Like we're being programmed every single day. So to deprogram ourselves and keep ourselves deprogrammed and to stay in any kind of love and light, we need to stop consuming all the negative media, stop watching all the negative TV. We need to stop feeding ourselves with all of this negative stuff. That's why I always say to people, how you start your day? Do you start, some people, I remember a guy saying to me, I wake up every morning to the news. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse than waking up in a state of fear. Okay, I'm not talking about like stepping back and not living in the real world and not knowing what's going on, but we are consuming far too much negativity from the media. There's far too much fear-based stuff out there. Um, and it keeps us, it keeps us in our place. It keeps us in a fear-based mentality. And that's where they want us. You know, we're easier to control when we're in a fear-based mentality. So when we start to wake up and we start to gain traction and we gain power, I mean, look at the power of the people in the referendum in Ireland. I mean, I just wish that we had that same passion for every single election because every single election is just as important as the referendum was. And look at what we're able to do when we come together you know, as, as a people. And I just think that we can't kind of um, cherry pick. It's like some people want a la carte wellness, you know, like when I'm asked to go in and do stuff, they're like, can you do this, this and this, but not say this, this and this. I'm like, I don't do a la carte wellness, you know, you know, unfortunately I just tell the truth and I I teach from what I know. And that's all there is to it. Like you can't, and that's, and that'll show you what people do. You know, or we'll bring well-being into our company, but only this way. Or we'll only tell people these things and we won't tell them those things. So I think when we navigate the new world that's about to come, we need to keep it an open and curious mind about everything we already know and about everything we're being told. And that doesn't have to be from a place of paranoia, but genuinely from a place of open curiosity, which can come from a place of joy. Our thoughts, I mean, as Abraham Hicks always says, our beliefs are thoughts we just keep on thinking. Where did we get our beliefs from? We got our beliefs from our parents, from school, from the Catholic Church, if you're in Ireland. And, you know, like that's where, I mean, studying in UCLA blew my mind wide open about how many blind spots I had from being raised in Ireland in the Catholic Church. And I would have considered myself, you know, we're all so full of BS, you know, with our ego. Um, I would have considered myself to have been well-traveled from when I was 15, to have quite an open mind, and I've worked and lived at many different cultures in the world. And I was shocked to see just how many blind spots I had when we were doing things like racial diversity and bias. And we're very quick to point fingers, but we're very, very um, slow to do the work. And I know I always keep coming back to doing the work. So, you know, when we judge other people, I think it's really important. Look, look at mental health in Ireland. Look at the stigma that's around mental health in Ireland still. 
how far have we come? I do think it's great. I think it's great that we're talking about it. And I think certainly we have come a long way from the first time that I started talking about it eight years ago when nobody spoke about it. You know, it was like people kept saying to me, stop talking about this. It's affecting your career. Stop talking about this. People are talking about you. Now I get that exact same narrative emailed to me and said to me about alcohol. It's really interesting. Stop talking about alcohol. It's affecting your work. Stop talking about alcohol. It's affecting how people see you. Yet it's not affecting the people who go out and get absolutely wasted every weekend. <laughs> like, like it's really, when you step back and observe what's going on, it's kind of crazy, you know? So if I went back into like destroying my life and going out and getting wasted and falling in at seven of the mo- in the morning, I would be accepted. So then I would be able to work and then people would, would book me for work. But because I've changed my life and cleaned up my life and I'm stating something that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people, please don't do that because, you know, it's making people uncomfortable. Well, I think we need to make people very, very uncomfortable right now because there's a lot of really, really dark stuff happening in the world, around the world with governments, how people are being treated and if you sit back and you observe this and you do nothing, you are part of the problem. You are complicit. And I so admire you for that because it does take courage to step out and to go against the grain and to say, well, maybe we should be looking at this. And even though everybody's like, oh, no, shh, don't talk about that. Um, you know, just keep the status quo to step out and to speak your truth and to say what needs to be heard takes so much courage. And I really admire you for that. And one thing I find is that when I'm teaching meditation and the people who come to my class, when they learn just the simplest of processes, one thing they always say is, if I only knew how to do this, if I only knew how to do this, you know, when I was younger. And I think that children need to be taught how to meditate from a young age and schools. Yes, they're taking on, you know, more wellness programs at classes but I think it needs to be you know ramped up and that children really need to be taught how to meditate and how to go about their lives in a mindful way yeah and I also think they're they're born with a different consciousness I think our kids are very different to what we were and I think they're completely different actually and I think the education system is is broken you know and I think it needs to be changed like we cannot expect five and six-year-olds to go into school, sit down and shut up for the whole day. Like it's not what they're supposed to do. It's not what they should be doing. So we need to kind of figure out a way to teach differently, you know, to bring out the best in each child and look at the education system. Most, a lot of kids don't benefit from our education system. You know, it doesn't cater for the arts. It doesn't cater for creativity. It doesn't cater for individuality. It doesn't cater for stepping out and stepping up on your own. Um, And I think a lot of work needs to be done there. And the first budget to ever be cut in schools, the first funding to ever go is arts and creativity, you know, and that's what we need to start bringing back. And that's only going to happen if we all wake up as a people and start speaking up for that. Mm. You know, like every single kid, like drama, creative arts, they should all be part of the curriculum. Every kid to just have to do that, you know what I mean? Just to kind of feed that aspect of ourselves. Like, you remember years ago when you used to say, oh, I'm not artistic. We're all artistic. We're all creative beings. Every single one of us. I just don't buy that. I don't buy this all, you know, oh, I was told when I was young that I didn't have um, any talent in this area. Therefore, I'm not. And we need to really be mindful of the stories that we were told and the stories that we bought into about ourselves 
ourselves. But I think our children are going to change this world regardless. Mm-hmm. I just think they're very different. And I see it even in my own son. He's eight. They are just so much more connected than we ever were. They are brilliant. And if we allow them to just flourish and be as brilliant as they are, we won't have a problem. I just went last week to sixth class here in Greystones in uh, Educate Together and they did a whole film about, you know, no more plastic straws and they wanted no more plastic straws in Greystones. And I'm like, you know, the young people are aware, they are awake and I do think they're going to make a difference. I, I go into schools and I talk to young people and I'm always blown away at the level of consciousness that I'm hearing back from 16, 17 year olds. So I actually don't worry about our young people. I just think that we need to give them the tools to help them grow. Well, that's it. And to foster the innovation and the creativity and not just to tell them to sit down and learn this, but to allow them to flourish and to expand and grow in the way that they need to and want to. Um, But one other thing that you touched on that I want to go back to, you were saying about how if we have, you know, all this pain and all these emotions inside us, that it comes out as, you know, disease, whether it's physical or it's mental or whatever way it manifests. And that's something I really believe in. It's not waiting until that final moment where you're so desperate that, you know, you're sick or something has happened to, you know, take back your power and to start to bring all this pain to the light so that you can actively deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it at some point. So it's just having the courage to go in and to start looking at, well, why do I feel this way? Why do I turn to, you know, alcohol or sugar or shopping or TV or whatever it is? And why do I need that? And what I think for me, anyway, mindfulness, I mean, I don't, the reason why I don't drink alcohol is because I get so much of a greater high when I meditate. It's like, and I remember one of my students said to me during a class, it's like, this is like a legal high. Like, it's just like, you know, you have that connection. It's like, I wouldn't even think of trying to relax in any other way because I know I can just sit down, I can close my eyes and I can connect. And it's just amazing and it feels and it is I, I I always say it's like connecting to your higher self is is a natural high and you will never you will nothing will ever beat that you know what I mean because there is no there is no come down after it like there is with most of the synthetic things outside of us but I always say you know for people who are sick um I don't blame people who are sick for bringing it on themselves and that's one thing that's really important and that always gets lost in this kind of conversation when we talk about you know when you suppress things they come up as disease and then people always say well what about all the people in the world with cancer and I say there's a lot of things that was causing our cancer there's the wi-fi signals there's the environment we're living in there's the outdoor pollutants there's an awful lot of stuff that we cannot control you know there's genetics and everything so there's there's absolutely never any blame in what I'm talking about but what I am talking about is taking responsibility for what you can do you know so what what behaviors and what what choices are you making every day that are leading you down a path of dis-ease with yourself? And I'm talking about dis-ease within yourself and within your mind. And that's what I had to look at. You know, I had chronic anxiety, really bad depression. I was sick all the time. I was not in a good place. I was feeling very low. And it took a long time for me to get to a place where I was content all the time, you know, where I was in this place where, you know, 
I can have a bad day and still be content. And people don't understand that. Like I still feel, you know, okay in myself and I still feel grounded. I can have a day where I'm crying for a few hours, but still feel content. And I know that sounds um, counterintuitive, but it's actually not because I'm still doing the work on those days. But what we do when we're bringing emotions up for healing is we're integrating all of us. We're accepting fully who we are as a person. And we've been taught to only accept the good parts of us. We've been taught that since we were very young. And in the Catholic Church, we get taught that any negative aspects of us are sins and that we'll go to hell. So we, we kind of suppress those parts of us. As human beings, we're 50-50. You know, there's light, there's dark, there's good, there's bad, there's all of those things. So it's really important that we acknowledge and we bring in to our being those darker aspects of us or our shadow sides, as we call it sometimes. And we face them and we look at them because they're the parts of us that are leading us down the road of drinking too much and all of those type of things or, you know, being in very volatile relationships or being abusive or controlling. Or We all have this, by the way. It comes back to that old karaoke um, tale, which I just adore, where it's, you know, the grandfather says to the grandson, inside of us are two wolves. One is jealousy, anger, greed, hatred, the other one is love, beauty, joy, and happiness. And he says, you know, which one wins? And he said, whichever one you feed. And that tells us perfectly why we need to do the work. Because if you don't feed yourself with the good habits that are going to cause you to feel good in your life, well, then the outside world will do it for you and will program you. So you'll just sit in front of the telly and be programmed, or you'll read the newspaper and be full of fear, or you'll attract negative people and you'll just start to spiral into this world of, oh my God, it's such an awful world. It's not such an awful world. There are awful things happening in this world, but it is not an awful world. And there are many, many, many good people doing many amazing good things out there. But I do believe it's time to bring together those good people like to mobilize love. Why can't we mobilize love? Love is 10 times more powerful than fear or hate. People always laugh at me when I say that and they go, love is 10 times more powerful than fear and hate. And I'm like, oh yeah. Like when somebody is talking about you or sending you negative energy, send them back love, send them a blessing, send them forgiveness, wish, wish prosperity and happiness and abundance for them because they need it. They need it more than anybody else. Um, and I think when you really move and make that shift, it's, it's literally we're moving from the mind into the heart and we're living from a heart-centered place. And people often say to me, how do I move from the mind to the, from, to the heart? By setting the intention, by simply bringing your awareness from your mind to your heart when you're doing your mindfulness and meditation practice or even just sitting and bringing your attention down into your heart by placing your hand over your heart. You know, it's, it's, everything is done through consciousness and awareness and through intention. So I intend today to try and lead from the heart. And I always say a beautiful poem from A Course in Miracles, which is, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? And I say that every single morning so that I'm not constantly asking for stuff, but I'm asking to be guided and I'm asking to be led and I'm asking... I'm asking God to use me, you know, in the best way possible that's best for humanity. But what I mean by God is that I believe God is love. I don't believe he's a man in the sky that we were told in school in the Catholic Church. I believe that God is love. Um, and God is that, that consciousness, that really powerful consciousness of love. And if we, 
if we stay in that consciousness, anything is possible. And I really do believe that anything is possible. I love that so much. And as well, you know, that consciousness is inside us, which we don't often realize. Mm. And earlier you said about connecting with your power and realizing how powerful you are. And that's something that can be quite scary because as Marianne Williamson says, you know, it's not, it's our power that, you know, it brings up more fear in us, the power that we have. And also you mentioned about, you know, when you can be content when you're going through something, when you're suffering, or maybe maybe when you're experiencing sadness or anger or pain, but be content within that. And for me, that's mastery. When you can be in the pain but be okay with it and accept it, accept the contrast and the deliciousness of all of it, not just when you're in the happy moments, but appreciating the sadness because you know that you'll feel the happiness more fully when you return to the happiness. And I just love that you brought that up. I love, I love when you said there, the deliciousness. I'm like, yes, it is. It's delicious. (laughs) Um, And which also reminds me as well of when I always say, we need to embrace the messiness of life because when we kind of have this picture perfect life set out in front of us, you know, where we're going to have this and we're going to have the house and we're going to have this and everything. When stuff starts to go wrong, we get knocked off kilter very quickly. And this is the problem. You know, when things aren't going our way, when life is not going our way, we find it very difficult to cope because we don't have a center of grounding to begin with. We don't have any of that within. So that's why during times of recession, most people just fall apart. They fall apart because their entire self-worth is based on what they have and how the world sees them, not on who they are inside. And there's another book, actually, I'm writing I'm writing so many things at the moment. I'm writing a book on the soul of money by Lynn Twist, and it's an extraordinary book when we look at our relationship with money and how money is energy. But she looks a lot about how we disempower people through charity. And when we give and give and give, especially to third world countries, that we disempower people because they forget who they are. They forget that they are actually quite powerful themselves. And as the book goes on, she talks about how um, in the hunger projects where they're trying to relieve world hunger by collaborating with people, you know, in different countries. And it's mind blowing to read some of the stories. So in India, for example, in a local town, there was an entire... Basically, everyone was going to, you know, migrate to somewhere else because they didn't know what to do. And six of the local men got together and they decided to clear all this kind of bush back that everybody thought they couldn't work with. And the town then started to come together and they found their own resources and they built themselves up. And with the support of the money working as a collaborative um, project, they were able to get back on their feet. But the only reason they were able to get back on their feet was because they dug deep, they went into their inner resources and they came together as a community. So I've learned so much from reading her book about how we disempower ourselves also, you know, a lot of the time by taking and taking and taking from the outside world and not understanding the inner resources that we have to come up with solutions for ourselves and to come up with problems. And I remember when I was... When James was about one and I realized that modeling was a stupid job after you've had a baby because you have to be in perfect size clothes to get to work, you know, and I was going, what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, I had the choice to stay on lone parents and get quite a lot of money every week, like a lot of money. And I got a job, I remember in the Daily Mail, 
and I was earning 40 euros a week more than I was allowed and all my um all my welfare was taken which left me in a really awful position and I'm very very blessed and I do understand this point by the way that they don't bridge the gap for people because I'm very blessed that my mom my friends were able to step in and prevent me from losing my home and help me pay my rent and so I do understand that if you were in a position like I was you probably would have had to let go of the job and stay on loan parents so there are things that we need to fix in this country but at the same time I did have a choice to stay at home, you know, get a couple of grand a month handed to me or go back to college and study two to three nights a week for many, many years, spend loads of nights crying, but ultimately knowing that at the end of it, I was going to build a better life for my son. Again, this is not coming from a place of judgment for anybody. I'm very lucky that I had surrounding me a very good family who were able to take care of my son, who were able to step in. But at the end of the day, we do still have choices. We have choices in where we want to go next. They might not be the easiest choices. We might have to sacrifice an awful lot at that moment. Like I always say to people, we can have it all in this life, but not at the same time. Absolutely not at the same time. What I had to do for the last few years was forgo kind of going out, you know, forgo a lot of that kind of stuff and just spend time with James, make sure he was looked after and, you know, show up and study and be the best that I could do and build a business. So I do believe that we're limited by what the world tells us and what the world teaches us. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but it's different for me. I could never do that. And I'm like, but why? And the only why is because she's been told or he's been told that they could never do that. Um, and we see the power of possibility throughout all these books that we read and through across the world in all these stories. I mean, she talked about um, the women's convention in Shanghai where three women from around the world that she particularly focuses on scraped together every penny that they had. One of them, um, I think she was from Guatemala and her husband and two sons had fled because they knew they were going to be killed. And when the soldiers came and asked her, where her husband and sons were, they genuinely didn't know. They not only killed all her animals on the farm first, then they killed each one of her 11 children, taking her baby away from her breast and then removing both her breasts as well. And she arrived to speak to the women of the world to say, by being here and telling you my story, I know my life has made a difference. And I even get upset thinking about that now because what happens to one person in the world happens to us all. And for that woman to make that journey and to come and be strong enough, and she died two weeks after, actually. And I think that we have a role to play, all of us in this world, in whatever way that means. And we all have a purpose. We don't have to find our purpose. We all have a purpose just to show up, to show up, to speak up, to shine our light, to speak up for what's wrong. Um, and to make a difference in the world. And that starts with you in your home and in your community. Like I think social media has led us down this path that we need to be making grand gestures and doing huge big things and have massive followings to make a difference. We don't. You know, the interaction starts between you and one other person and that's where change happens, really. Uh, <clears throat> absolutely. It can be as simple as choosing to smile at somebody that you meet during the day and that can have a huge impact on their day or just saying a kind word, you know, just the people that you interact with on a daily basis. And one of the things that you talked about, you mentioned about, you know, 
how when we're in that state of, you know, disease or, you know, it's not about blaming. And I totally agree. But the other thing that I think it's really important is realizing that everything we go through has a gift and an opportunity attached to it. And that, you know, those situations that we sometimes feel are our lowest lows, often we come through them and we realize actually that was leading to something bigger. Now I can teach others, I can help others who are going through that. And if you had chosen to stay on welfare and not to go out and to do the work and not to do the training, and if you had stayed in that place of, you know, seeming security, yes, you would have stayed in your comfort zone, but I truly believe that our comfort zones then become our zones of discomfort yeah. because we realize there's more, we have to share more. And if we stay stuck in our little, you know, comfort zones, then we don't share what we have to offer others. And I think we're all here to help each other. Well, you absolutely hit the nail on the head and again said it so beautifully. But And really what that is, is that we live in our own prisons. We just can't see the bars. And to get out of prison, you know, we have to really be very honest with ourselves. And one of the most difficult things that I found in my journey was taking personal responsibility. Personal responsibility that every choice I have ever made up until this point got me here. That is not something you want to hear. And I remember someone saying that to me many years before in AA. And by God, they got the head bitten off them. And I mean the head, how dare you say that I am responsible. So you're telling me that this and this and this and this was my fault. And when I look back now, yes, it was, <laughs> you know. Um, and that's, that's probably the toughest part of making a change. The toughest part is, is understanding that every choice you make, you make. Um, somebody said to me last week, um, somebody I know, back in America. And they said, you know, I just can't believe it, Alison. I'm so depressed. I went through all my money, which is a substantial amount of money. Okay. A substantial amount of money. And I've known this person for about 20 years. And I said to them, did someone put a gun to your head while you were spending two grand a night in a nightclub? And he got so angry with me. And he goes, oh, well, you've changed. And I said, no, I'm just, I'm just saying to you, you know, did someone make you spend all that money? And he was like, well, I mean, blah, 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 blah. And so the truth is like, we only get defensive when we know someone's hit a nerve, but I wish there was times in my life where people would have been as honest with me as I was with him. And I got a a beautiful message from him a few days later saying, you know, thank you so much for being honest with me. You know, gosh, you really have grown into a strong woman. And it's like, I haven't really grown into a strong woman. That woman was always there. And that's really important for, for everybody to know. You know, we all have that strength within. We all have that strength within. And it's not a strength that comes from the kind of Trump strength of power. It's a very silent, contented strength that comes from being comfortable in your own skin, knowing your worth, you know, having some semblance of self-esteem, you know. Um, and I don't say things, you know, that I don't believe and that I haven't lived through, as I've said before. And when I can see something as clearly as that, it's like I did that for years. I remember doing a massive big hair campaign and getting a ridiculous amount of money for it and spending it in ridiculous ways and then blaming the world that I wasn't working or, you know, this was happening or, you know, so it's, 
I've been there. I was always the one pointing the finger. And I always say, when you're pointing that finger, look at how many fingers are pointing back at you, three. So you're pointing one, but there's three looking back at you. So you're only ever really judging yourself, you know? And when you talk about people and when you put that energy out there into the world, it's always coming back to you. And that took me a long time to realize because, you know, we can get caught up, especially in my industry, in the fashion industry of people can be quite bitchy, you know, and you can get caught up in that. And it's only when you step outside that you realize the amount of energy that takes from us when people talk about other people and when people gossip. And now I find when I'm around that energy, I actually get quite like a little bit hyperventilated. Like it takes, it takes from me. I, I get, I really notice the difference quite quickly. And I'm by no means perfect, by the way. <laughs> like that is, I am not a perfect person. I am certainly a, a work in operation. But what I do try to do now is catch myself, you know, and I really try and catch myself and I find myself going into that kind of negative spiral and go, is it true? Does this really need to be said? And is this any of my business? <laughs> Which is really important, you know, when I, when I find myself getting caught in conversations, I sometimes have to pull myself back and go, I don't know this person. This is absolutely none of my business. And I have no idea whether it's true or not. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a great point because I think when people look at you and they see all the things that you've done and all the great work that you're doing, and there is that air about you that you have it all together and that you're in your power. And, you know, obviously you have that self-esteem. But as you say, it is a work in progress and there's always greater levels to attain to. And there's yeah, but always- nobody, nobody has it all together. I think, you know, even some of the people, the biggest people in the world doing this work have coaches, have people that help them to see what they can't see themselves. And, you know, I know a lot of the, the, the big speakers in America and they all work the bigger they get, the more intensely they work with people. Mm, you know, the, that's because a great point. The, the more that comes up for them, you know? So it's like peeling layers off an onion. I think like the first couple of layers come off the onion and you're able to deal with that. I always say nothing will ever come up that you're not able for, but the first couple of layers come up and then the deeper layers need to come up for healing. And it's only through this work where those deeper layers come up when you're ready, when you're ready to sit with them, when you're ready to work with them, when you're ready to kind of acknowledge that part of yourself so I think we're here in earth school and I do think it's a school it's a school and I think we're in school every day to learn to learn from each other and the ego is always going to try and come in and kind of tell us what it thinks is best for us and that's why we have to constantly keep going back to the heart but I mean this year has been my greatest year of learning yet. It's been an incredible year from an educational perspective, from a professional perspective, from the opportunities I've been given. I was on the cover of Mindful in America. It, possibly for me, for someone who's modeled all their life, that is my greatest achievement so far for the cover of a magazine, the biggest mindfulness magazine in the world. However, I have also really struggled internally with a lot of stuff that has come up and I have ended up very very sick and I've had to work through all of that so I won't be sad to see the back of 2018 when it's gone but the learning and the gifts as we say that I've gotten from it have been enormous absolutely enormous and one of the greatest gifts this year has given me is to, to try not to judge people I mean that's been a constant lesson from me when I became a single mother how single moms are judged. And really, we learn we learn because of what other people say to us and how other people judge us as well. And then we see that we do the same. You know, if we're really honest with ourselves, we think, I do that too. 
sugar. I'm going to try and not do that again, you know. And even I heard a story where uh, Jack Cornfield was telling this story where he was, there was a guy in a supermarket and he was in a rush, you know, and there was two big lines in the supermarket. And there was a woman, a few people in front of him and a baby who was crying and the baby was really crying. And there was another line over there that was a bit shorter. Why wasn't she joining that line? Because she could get out of there quicker. And when she got to the cash register then, she handed the baby to the cash to the cashier, which incensed him. And he was like, does he not see all the people in the line here? I can't believe that they're handing the baby to the person in the line. So when he got up to the cashier, he said, oh, how are you? You know, I saw that woman hand the baby to you. And he was kind of saying, you know, how could she? You know, with everybody with it being so busy. And she said, um, he was in the military. And she said, yes, my husband was in the military like you. And a year ago, he got killed. And that's my mom. And she minds my baby. And I have to work two jobs. And she brings the baby into me once a day so I can hug the baby. And that story stopped me dead in my tracks. And I just went, whoa. How many times a day do we all do this? How many times a day do we all judge someone having no idea about what's really going on underneath? So I always say to people, you know, be careful what you judge because you judge the same in yourself. And there's been so many lessons like that to me. And, you know, I had loads of people write to me in August and when I canceled my events and say to me, I'm so disappointed. You are my pillar for health and well-being. And if you are sick, what hope do I have? And I was like, oh, that's not good because we, sh- we should be inspired by people to obviously live better and be better. But I'm immortal. Like I'm a human being. I'm not immortal. I am amortal. Um, and I'm a human being. And I think to have those type of standards for ourselves, you know, that I'm following this person and, you know, if I follow what they do or say, then I will never be sick is a very dangerous kind of precedent. And this, is, this goes back and loops into what we were talking about earlier, that when we have this perfectionist bubble that we live in, we are always going to be disappointed with ourselves. We're never going to be good enough, you know, and it's a really important lesson to learn. Well, <clears throat> I totally agree. And I want to share with people if they feel drawn to, you know, go into this deeper and to work with you and um, how they can work you th- with you. I know you work one-to-one, but you also do events as well. Yeah. Um, have you anything coming up at the moment? Um, I will have fresh resolutions in the new year. I'm in the States for the rest of this year. Um, so going next week. And then I have lots of I have my new full 360s in the new year. But I also have a monthly mindful members group um, that you can find through my website as well, alisoncanavan.com, where I do live meditations and monthly blogs and hypnosis and lots of different things. Brilliant. And you work remotely with people through Skype? I do, I do yeah. Skype. I do coaching on Skype and I do coaching here at home and I'm doing a vision board workshop this weekend. So I do lots of little workshops and different things as well. So keep Brilliant. an eye out on my Instagram, Alison Canavan Wellness, and on my website, alisoncanavan.com. Brilliant. And I'll post a link to your Instagram and to your website underneath the show notes. And Alison, it's been such a pleasure. I could probably talk for another hour with you about this stuff, but I am conscious of your time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks. Bye. Bye.